it was the perfect setup for a little mini version of a religious war to plop a monastery like that in the middle of the Valley of Saints, as I call it. But instead, the exact opposite happened because both of the groups were committed to the gospel mandate to love your neighbor as yourself. And they actually did that. They got to know each other as neighbors. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Michael Patrick O'Brien, Catholic writer and lawyer living in Salt Lake City, Utah. He wrote for his college newspaper while earning a government and theology degree from the University of Notre Dame and did movie reviews during law school. That could be a whole other subject, Mike. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it could be. <laughs> whole other interview. During law school at the University of Utah, he's a partner at the law firm of Jones, Waldo, Holbrook, and McDonough. Mike is married to Vicki, a preschool teacher, and they have three adult children and one grandchild. Congrats on the grandchild. Thank you. It, it truly is the best gig there is, I, I'm discovering. So. <laughs> so I'm wondering if I could go clear back to your book, which is called Monastery Mornings, really a memoir of, of growing up, but also your growing up was very tied to this monastery up in the mountains above Ogden, Utah. And will you just tell me a short description of the place and the setting? It's all kind of magical to me. It is magical. Of course, I, I appreciate it much more now than I did as a preteen and a teen. But it's this Trappist monastery set in the beautiful Ogden Valley in the southeastern corner, nestled up against the mountains. Spectacular views of Mount Ogden. Hmm. Uh, the monks have 18, or, or they had 1,800 acres, primarily ranch land, but they cultivated about 800 acres with alfalfa and wheat. And they had honeybees, and their building was a recycled Quonset hut from World War II that they lived in uh, supposedly temporarily, but it lasted 70 years. And they prayed, and they worked, and made an indelible impact on the world around them, believe it or not, from the lovely but small rural outpost of Huntsville, Utah. And the chapel, everyone has seen a Quonset hut, but about 30 feet high. Yes, Beautiful stained glass windows, but it's a Quonset hut. So what a unique chapel for all of those years. Yes, very unique. One of the writers from the Salt Lake Tribune who wrote on architecture for several years called it the only Quonset hut monastery in the world. And I, you know, he didn't cite anything, but I, he's a credible source. And so I, I take him up on that. And I think it, you know, we're used to these spectacular Gothic stone monasteries. And here's this simple Quonset hut you know, set in the middle, dropped almost in the middle of this rural valley uh, you know, full of uh, Latter-day Saints. Just a, it is a magical place. It was a magical place. You write about being a preteen and starting to go to the monastery. I want to go back one step because you did find kind of a home there spiritually. Yes. yes. But from what you describe, your mother had had a similar association with the Sisters of Mercy growing up where she lived. Yes. So my mother was a Irish Catholic girl from Burlington, Vermont. Almost at the same age that you know our family trauma arrived, she had similar family trauma at third grade. Her mother died and her father was an alcoholic and sort of lost 
lost his will to live after he lost his wife. And so mom was shuffled around uh, to friends and neighbors and ultimately lived in Mount St. Mary's convent where her aunt was a sister there. And her uh, uncle, also from the Burlington area, was a priest. And I think the two of them conspired to place her in the best place they could, and that ended up being a, a convent with an orphanage school, if you will, up on a hill overlooking Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. You have older sister and brother. Yes. And at the time of your mother's divorce, or soon thereafter, she started taking you to early morning mass. Yes. And I'm just guessing she had found a spiritual refuge and was hoping that you would. Yes. We, we, we kind of stumbled upon the place. You know, the, that generation liked to take drives. You know, gas was 30 cents a gallon. You know, you, you may remember that as a, as a <laughs> if, kid as well. If only. <laughs> if only, you know. Um, so one day she said, let's take a ride. And we did and ended up in the Ogden Valley and saw a sign that said monastery with an arrow pointing a certain direction. And, you know, good Irish Catholics, we followed the sign and ended up uh, at Abbey of the Holy Trinity, went into the bookstore. My mother was looking for a book, and she said to one of the monks there, Brother Felix, can I tell you what I'm looking for? And he interrupted her and said, I know what you're looking for, the same as the rest of us, peace. And so from there, to steal a line from Casablanca, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And we started going up there regularly, including the early morning mass. I wish I had spoken with her more about this before she passed away, but I think mom thought that a place like that would be a refuge for me, the youngest of, of the family in the middle of what was a traumatic family divorce. And I think she was looking to maybe imitate the role that priests and nuns played in her life when, when her during her youthful traumas. Sounds like it was a wise decision on well, her part. She was a pretty smart woman, and uh, you know she certainly got the family through a very difficult time and uh, I think is definitely one of the, the heroes of, of my story. So the order of Trappist monks will have very early prayers. Yes, very, very early, yes. <laughs> Three-something in the 3 morning? 3.30 a.m., yes. Okay, yes. And, but with a commensurate <laughs> bedtime as well. So. Yeah, okay. yes, yes. They have their order of prayers and services during the day. Is it typical that they have visitors like you and your mom dropping in, or is it mostly the monks? Yes and no uh, in terms of typical to have visitors. Certainly a lot of people went there. A lot of people were touched by that place, by the monks, in very profound ways. But a lot of people were sort of what I call casual visitors, mm. and we stuck it out. So after that first bookstore visit, we started going regularly two or three times a week. We would go to the, the prayer services. Never quite made the 3.30 a.m. one, even when I was staying up there one time. Uh, but we did make the 6.20 Mass on a regular occasion. And I think because we came so frequently, the monks recognized us and started to feel comfortable interacting with us more. So we got sort of an insider status that a lot of the casual visitors don't get, including uh, you know, what it's like to, to be trying to focus on mass at six in the morning. <laughs> I can see a child that age surrounded by believing people who are kind, thoughtful, and really drinking it all in. And then at some point, though, when do you decide what is actually your own belief? What was that process like for you? Well, I or, mean, you're, or was it just always a given? No, no, it wasn't always a given. You know, it's not even a given today, right? Faith is a daily choice, I think, mm. especially 
you know, if you're a Catholic uh, the last few years and you have to deal with the rather difficult and embarrassing child abuse scandal that we've all uh, suffered through. But, you know, there initially, it was just a cool place for a kid to be there. You know, I mean, they, they had a farm, they had animals, they had chickens, they had cows, they let me drive a tractor. I enjoyed reading about you, your first experience trying to sort of hurt a calf. Oh, it, it, was, a, it was a dreadful, uh, dreadful first experience. And I don't have many more experiences after that that are better than that. But yeah, the monks, you know, they, they would do things like, you know, right after church, they would grab me and say, we need your help. And I'd ride down to a field with them. And by the way, they named all their fields after Catholic saints, which is really cool. So we went down to St. Stephen's Field and they said, that calf needs to be over there. And they pointed to a different direction, a different field and said, go, go get it. And so I said, okay, you know, and I'm in church shoes and church clothes and trotting through a muddy field uh, trying to hurt a calf, which is much more difficult than I expected it to be. And an hour later, I managed to finally achieve the goal, and the monks complimented me. But I have to think years later that you know these rancher monks, big, strong men, knew how to get a calf into the right field without my help. And so I think they, you know, they were maybe joking with me. Maybe they were playing a little monastic trick on me. Maybe they were teaching me, you know, how to be a rancher. I don't know, but it was very memorable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had a short-lived stint as a 12-year-old on a dairy farm, which persuaded me that I should go to college. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my own chasing calf uh, experience uh, probably is what led me to law school. So I, I hear you. The Trappist order, as I understand it, really is agrarian. It's based on agriculture, beekeeping, all of that. Yes. Yeah, the, the monks believe, you know, their Latin uh, motto is ora et labora, right? Uh, uh, work and prayer uh, based on the rule of St. Benedict. And so they, they place their monasteries in very rural places, out of the way places, because manual labor is very much a part of their life. And that was certainly true at Holy Trinity. They had a wonderful dairy farm, a ranch, as I mentioned. They, they raised chickens. They had the, the monk who was an esteemed theologian, also was the beekeeper and was the plumber. You know, three pretty mm. good skills for a monastery. So very agrarian, very much uh, connected to the land, very much connected to the, the natural world around them. And you, because of these close connections, considered priesthood for a while. I did. I did. So what was that process of, I think it's called discernment. Yes. Discovering, is this my calling? Yes, you know, discernment of a vocation, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. we, all, we all have vocations, so we all have to do some discerning. Mm. But for me, it included whether or not I wanted to be a priest. You know, and in part, I was drawn to the life because of the role models I had, the very, you know, fine examples of people who took care of children, who cared for children, as mm. opposed to some of the... Uh, more uh, notorious contra examples today. So I did try to discern whether I had a vocation there and ultimately decided I didn't. In part, you know, I was uh, a little worried about that 315 wake-up call we talked about a moment ago. (laughs) I'm a bit of a night owl and I I needed to find a monastery that, uh, you know, catered to night owls instead of uh, morning birds, uh, morning doves. I'm not Uh, sure that exists. Yeah, I I didn't find one, obviously. But I think, you know, because I did The Brothers of Constant Somnambulation. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Brothers of the Late Night Inspiration. (laughs) Uh, um, But I think also because I didn't have a, a father present in my life, 
that sort of made me even more interested in being a father, which, of course, wasn't a, an option for me, either as a priest or as a monk. So I ultimately you know, chose the, mm. the married life and have three wonderful adult children who kind of call me the monk in the world because I'm still, I've still got one foot in that world, if you will, and it's been a very, uh, very wonderful vocation for me. Did you write this book, Monastery Mornings, because it was closing? Like as a then the history would be gone. What motivated you to sit down and start writing? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one is the closure of the monastery. I learned it was closing, and it did close in 2017 because of the monks aged out of the ability to maintain a monastery. And as I mentioned, I we had stumbled on this place, and I knew that wasn't going to be happening for people anymore, which was a tragic loss in my mind. These are wonderful men. They're too modest to tell their own story. I wanted their story to be told, so I decided I had the ability to tell it. So I did. Uh, and I want people to stumble on the monastery, if you will, perhaps by stumbling on my book. So that was one reason. But the other reason I, I call a bit of spiritual therapy, because at the same time I learned the monastery was closing, I was dealing with my own anger and frustration about the Catholic priest sex abuse scandal. Mm and almost left the church as a result of that through anger at the betrayal and the cover-up that occurred. And so writing this book was a form of spiritual therapy for me. I, in effect, had to go backwards in order to go forward with the church. And I had to remember the foundation I had that included many, many very, very good women and men who were nuns or priests or monks who took care of me, who rescued me in some situations. And it was a reminder that, uh, you know, in, in life, in our religious life in particular, we have to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? The book helped me do that in terms of dealing with my own frustration with the scandal. And lovely to be reminded of the vast majority of these dedicated folks and their, and their goodness, yes. kindness. Yes. Was that therapeutic in dealing with trauma in your own life? It was, right? So, you know, there were, there were some traumatic events that occurred to me as I was a child. And uh, along with my mother, the monks were there to sort of pick me up and dust me off and put me back on track. And I think having that experience of dealing with trauma has certainly been a gift and a strength as I've gone through life because life is about resilience, about getting up again after you've been knocked down. And certainly, you know, that experience of sorting through the good and the bad and continuing to take steps forward was essential to my own spiritual life and going forward with the, the church that had uh, suffered from the scandals. You quote a Father Patrick yes. as saying, being alone is not being aloof. Yes. Many of us on first blush would think, okay, they, they're cutting themselves off from the world. Are they doing any good? You know, yes, they're praying. And, but this makes me think that they have something else in mind. Can you talk about the intent that you saw from the brothers there at the monastery? Well, and it's interesting that you quote Father Patrick because he's a, a perfect example of, of all of that. Mm. He, he's still alive. I just talked with him the other day. Oh, wow. Yeah, he calls himself the old man in the old folks' home and tells me, Mike, the first hundred years are the hardest. <laughs> he's now 94. <laughs> Survived COVID. I, I mean, he's, a, he's the energizer bunny. He keeps mm. going. It would be harder to find a more devoted monk. He joined that monastery in 1950. The last thing he did before he left St. Louis was to watch Stan Musial hit a home run. Then he got on a train and joined the monastery in Utah, and he rarely left after that. But he had so much contact with other people. He worked in the bookstore in the reception room, 
And he loved to have visitors, you know, atheists, Catholics, Latter-day Saints, no matter what they were. And he would say to them, you know, when you walk through that door, Christ came into this room. So he was— That's how he saw people. That's how he saw people and still sees people. He was devoted to the contemplative life of prayer and meditation and solitude and silence and quiet. But he found his way to connect to the world. And in in those few moments, you know, a few hours a day when he would do that, he would learn so much about people and what was going on in the world that he would take that back to his primary vocation, which was to pray for all of us. And in his alone time, he would not be aloof because he was thinking about us and praying for us and asking God to take care of us. Mm. So they're withdrawn from the world and they're a part of the world at the same time. It's a rather wonderful combination of almost opposites, if you will, uh, that they managed to pull off rather spectacularly. I have this interesting image of two groups of pioneers. First, 1847, the Latter-day Saints come from what had been Illinois and then Iowa, Nebraska, and for a while were sort of threatened by the outside world, including the U.S. sending an army. Yeah, yes. That's <laughs> rather so the, threatening. <laughs> so so I think there had developed a little bit of this us-against-the-world yes. mentality. Then in what, 1940, 100 years later— yes. Here come these monks out of nowhere, and they buy a whole bunch of land, and it sounds like there were suspicions at first, like, what are they coming to do to us? There, there were a lot of suspicions. There was a petition to, to get rid of them. They had literally plopped a monastery into the backyard. Which is so sad from people who had been persecuted. Yes, yes. Well, it was a little mutual. You know, there were some suspicions on both sides. Mm. I, I'm actually working on a book on that very topic right now. We talk about it a little bit in the Monastery Mornings book. But they plopped this monastery in the backyard of President David O. McKay, who grew up in Huntsville, of course. Yes. And some of the things, Thomas Merton's journals chronicle the effort to build the Utah Monastery. And you know the abbot who led that effort was a wonderful man, but he said some rather negative things about the Latter-day Saints, including talking about you know praying for the temple to fall down when he drove past it in Salt Lake. And similarly, there were comments on the other side about you know the Church of the Abomination and the Antichrist. And so it was the perfect setup for you know, a little mini version of a religious war to plop a, a monastery like that in the middle of uh, the Valley of Saints, as I call it. But instead, the exact opposite happened because both of the groups were committed to the gospel mandate to love your neighbor as yourself. And they actually did that. They got to know each other as neighbors. The monks shared equipment and, and bought, you know, cattle with a neighbor. They actually paid for the mission of, of one of the neighbors with whom they were very, very close. And then that young man in turn named his first child after that monk when he returned from his mission. So it turned into this beautiful story of exactly how you go about loving your neighbors yourself. Person by person. Person by person. Encounter by encounter. And it was mutual. The Relief Society brought cakes and breads over twice a year on the feast days when the monks could eat them. The mayor of Huntsville, who was a descendant of David O. McKay, organized a group to help rebuild a barn that had collapsed under the snow. What, what could have been a very divisive moment in the valley turned out to be a very uh, integrating moment. So that to this day, some of the people who are most sad about the departure of the monks are, are the saints. Which is reflected in the title, Monastery Mornings, My Unusual Childhood Among the Monks and Saints. Yes. Saints, uh, we associate with monks a lot, but with the Latter-day Saints, that's interesting. 
because of the meaning of saints in the Catholic Church. You're named for two of them, a Michael and a Patrick. Yes, yes. Do you have a saint that you hold in your heart as a favorite or a guide star, that kind of? I'm lucky to have three that I, I hold mm. that way. Obviously, you know, St. Michael the Archangel is a pretty impressive figure. I, I don't quite measure up to that on a regular basis. And Patrick, of course, with the Irish connection. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, when, when Catholics are in their early teens, we go through a sacrament called confirmation where we essentially renew our baptismal vows. And we take on the name of a saint at that point in time. And I took on the name Francis mm. for Francis of Assisi. Uh, so that's my that's my triumvirate, right? That's my trioka, uh, 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 Michael Patrick Francis O'Brien. You could do worse than following in the footsteps of any of those. I, I, I agree completely. <laughs> <laughs> what made you choose St. Francis at your confirmation? I chose St. Francis because he's a very interesting character. He cares about animals. He cares about the environment. He takes care of people. He has this sort of mystical element about him that I don't have. You know, I'm, I'm a very sort of straightforward, non-mystical Catholic. And we watched a wonderful movie about him at about the time I was being confirmed. It had this beautiful music about, uh, you know, they, they put to modern music his Canticle of the Sun. Mm. And I just thought he was a really cool guy. So I picked the cool saint who sort of appealed to uh, a number of my interests at the time. Mm. And he's one that enough of us outside of the Catholic tradition maybe even venerate yes. and respect that when the current pope chose that as his papal name, yes. I kind of got chills. It was a delightful moment. I, I, I got chills too, ah. you know, not just because of my confirmation name, but because it was the first and it was a statement. And Francis is, is one of those saints who does transcend denominational lines. And he does so for a very good reason because he, he touches on issues I think that are meaningful to all of us, the environment, care for animals, care for others, all of which go back to that basic message I referenced in the book that, you know, the heart of religion is love. And I, I think Francis is about love. Because faith is a journey and a daily choice, as you said, and we have experiences that cause us to question and then search, we find answers. You must be in a different place spiritually in your faith journey than when you first started. What do you know now that you didn't know in your teens or 20s back then? Or, or what, ha what, what do you know or feel differently? Uh, a, a lot, right? Mm. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a big believer in evolution, and I like to think that I'm evolving regularly. There's still a lot to evolve, I believe. But, uh, mm. I mean, what I didn't know then that I know now is what a blessing it was for me to have the childhood that I had. You know, at the time, I was a little distressed about it. I, I didn't want to be the divorced kid. You know, I didn't want to be the, the Especially kid. Especially in the 70s. And yes, the, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't want to be the kid without his father at, you know, games or school events. And so it was, it was difficult. I, I felt put upon to have to deal with those adult issues at a young age. Uh, but somebody in another interview said to me once, boy, aren't you glad that happened to you, though? Because otherwise you wouldn't have been able to have this childhood that turned out to be so wonderful. And it was wonderful and unique. I didn't appreciate it at the time. And I think part of the process of writing the book was an expression of appreciation for what a gift it was. So that's certainly something I know differently now than I did then is that you know, the, these, were, uh, these were men who created a, almost an imprint upon me that I didn't realize at the time. I didn't take the vows that they took 
But as I thought about it, the vows that they took are some of the governing principles in my own life. Will you mention those five vows? Sure, sure. So the the monks take a vow of obedience, uh, a vow of uh, uh, celibacy, a vow of poverty, a vow of uh, stability, and a vow of conversion of manners, as they call it. Hmm. And for me, I had to translate those, obviously, as a monk in the world. And stability, well, I I should start with obedience. Obedience comes from the word uh, to listen. So I don't have an abbot that I... You know, have to obey in my life, but I've I've learned that listening to others, you know, taking a vow of listening, if you will, is a pathway to a better life. Poverty, I, I don't live in poverty, right? I I have a good job, and you know, we live in uh, relative comfort. So I had to translate that vow into another uh, phrase, and I, I chose simplicity, simplicity and compassion. I can live a more simple and compassionate life. Hmm. Clearly, as a, a father and a grandfather, I, I, I didn't take a vow of celibacy. So what does that mean in the world for me? For me, it means devotion, devotion in your relationship to others. Uh, stability, the monks take a vow to live in the same monastery the rest of their life. And that's an impossible vow for me to take, but I can translate that into the notion of community. I can try to establish communities with whom I have stable relationships and with whom I uh, give and share the Christian life. And then conversion of manners, the, the last vow the monks take essentially says they promise to live their life as a part of self a growth and self-inspection and to become better people at the end of the process than they were at the beginning. You know, almost a Socratic knowledge, right, of, of knowing what you don't know and, and, and trying to grow through that process. Uh, so for me, that's how I've translated the, the last vow, is, which is try to be a better person every day. You know, it's always going to be a two steps forward, one step back process because we're imperfect beings. But through those five vows, I've noticed, again, in writing the book, that they created this pathway for me for how to live in the world, how to interact in the world, and how to develop a spiritual life. Did your spiritual life affect the profession you did go into, your, your vocation, and even within that, the subspecialty that you have? Yes. Yeah, so lawyers aren't exactly known as the most compassionate creatures in the world, oh, are they? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yes, I think it did. You know, I mean, I'm a strong believer that I can be a zealous advocate for my clients, but do it in a civil way, in a way that's ethical, with integrity, uh, right? Which means, you know, when you're when you're wrong, maybe the advice you give to your client is, you know, we need to fix this problem. Something went wrong here, and we need to resolve it. When you're right, you can defend your client in a righteous way, but also in a way that doesn't denigrate other people. So I think that it certainly has influenced how I go about my profession. It certainly hasn't been an impediment. There is proof out there you can be an ethical, compassionate lawyer, and and I'm not the only example of that, thankfully, uh, despite all the lawyer jokes to the contrary. And you talked about working to establish community, which leads me to maybe two questions. One is if you have a current religious community and what does that mean? Why why be in one? And in the community at large, what kind of communities are you thinking of when you say that? Great question. So I do have a, a, a church community. We belong to St. Thomas More Parish in Cottonwood Heights. It's a wonderful community, very um, committed to developing the spiritual life as well as following the uh, 
the mandate of, of the gospel to love others as you love yourself. So there's a very strong social justice component to the parish and lots of wonderful activities. So it's been it's been a very good community for us. We've been with that community for 30 years. We raised our three children. There's there. your stability, though. There, there's <laughs> the stability, exactly. And so what I also like about the community is, you know, it's not a Catholic ghetto. Uh, a lot of Catholics in Utah especially sort of willingly choose to live in a Catholic ghetto where the only people they interact with are other Catholics. And I don't know if it's done out of fear or, you know, out of a desire to be around people who you feel more comfortable with. Mm. We've tried really hard to do the exact opposite and to immerse our kids and our and ourselves in not just our Catholic community, but the world around us. So our kids did go to Catholic schools, but they also went to the University of Utah. Uh, you know, they participated in many, many programs where they met many people who were not like them. And our church itself is about 100 steps away from a, a ward house of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they have a wonderful relationship. They, they do – the choirs do programs together. They do a Christmas concert and they, they switch off the venue. Some years it's at our church. This year it's at the ward house. They do social justice projects together. I'm thinking you have better acoustics <laughs> <laughs> Well, for a choir. <laughs> <laughs> that may well be true. We have a, a beautiful church and, and the music is very, very uplifting there. But, you know, it's an example, I think, of what you referred to earlier about, you know, being stable and rooted in your own community, but not being aloof from the rest of the world oh. around you. So maybe it's yet another example of an imprint from the monks upon my own life. Towards the end of your book, you speak of this monastery as a place that you arrived at without a father and left with several of them. Yes, and that's kind of, I think, maybe a beautiful summation of what your experience was from what I read. Yes. Also, piggybacking on that, with faith as a choice, even a daily choice to believe, are there reasons why you profess a belief in God or the divine? Yes. And I, I write about this in the book, too. When I was at Notre Dame, I had a second major in theology. Again, the, the monk in me comes out. <laughs> and I took a class called Church Evolution, which is essentially the history of the Catholic Church in one year. You know, so we would cover 200 years every week, right? Or, uh, because you know, there, it, it's 2,000 years of history. It's a difficult and sordid and imperfect history, right? I mean, there's popes who are less than saintly. There's inquisitions. There's corruption. And you read through that history and you can become discouraged. But then you also see stories and examples of the exact opposite. You see stories like Francis of Assisi, right, uh, giving up everything to care for the poor. You see stories like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who visited Holy Trinity 50 years ago here in Utah. And for me, taking that course, I realized that despite the best efforts of us humans to screw up the message, the message remains and gets stronger with time. And what is that message? It's love. Right? It's love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, St. Paul, right? The three greatest virtues are hope, faith, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Right? It's the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. It's love one another. That's the core message of religion for me, that if we're not loving others, no matter who they are, we are not following our religion. And that's true in my study, in almost every single religion. I see it every day with my friends who are Latter-day Saints, I see it with my friends who are Protestants, and I see it with my friends who are Catholics. And that's what keeps me connected to religion, is love. Since the monastery has shut down, have you been back? I have been back. 
I established a friendship with the man who owns the monastery now, who's a wonderful person. And I call him the unexpected novice because he's carrying on the legacy of the monks, but he's not a monk. He's married, and he actually served a Latter-day Saint mission to Santa Rosa, California. Yet here he is. He bought the land to preserve it. He is very good friends with the monks. He's doing what he can to preserve their legacy. And we've developed a close friendship. We call it the Monk Nerd Club. <laughs> and I, I regularly talk with him and visit with him. We bring the monks back up there for barbecues. His wife, Elaine, makes a delicious potato salad that the monks are addicted to. Bill and Elaine White are wonderful examples of people loving one another as they would love themselves. And they're putting the land under a conservation easement so that it continues to be used for agriculture. So I'm very blessed to have that friendship and to be able to go up there whenever I want. It's different, but it's different in a good way too. It's new, but it's evolving, and it's wonderful to see that you know the, the spirit of the monks live on in the place. That's beautiful. Anything I should ask you that I don't know to ask you? <laughs> Well, I will tell you that a lot of people told me that I was not the only one who had these wonderful experiences with the monks, and that's when I started researching and interviewing others, mostly residents of the Ogden Valley up there. And through that process, I've met so many wonderful people who love the monks too, people like Marlon Jensen, the uh, Emeritus General Authority of the Church and retired historian, descendants of President McKay. People who tell me that the monks and the saints, again, as I mentioned before, are, are truly examples of uh, how we can live our lives caring for each other and being different but being the same. And so the monastery for me has always been a matter of addition rather than subtraction. The addition I'm getting right now is to hear about all these other wonderful stories of people who love the monks at a book signing, at a, mm. when I'm selling the book, uh, people just email me and tell me these men changed my life or saved my life. And so I'm so gratified to have that continuing pipeline of uh, wonderful monk stories to hear about besides my own. Michael Patrick O'Brien, Mike, thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. That's our time for today. Thanks to Michael O'Brien, author of Monastery Mornings, for generously sharing his faith and his stories. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. And if you enjoy the show, be sure you leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts. Help spread the word. We have a new episode every Sunday. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.